Good morning, everybody. We are in the fourth week of our five-week series entitled Harry Isn't Scary. We've been talking about the lesser-known characters, even on the more scandalous side of things from the book of Genesis. And so we're going to continue that this morning, and we're going to take a look at another story for you. Um, As we enter into this holiday season, there's a good chance that you might be entering into those moments where you have to see family members that you don't normally see, right? They are coming up for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, and maybe there are family members that you don't want to see, but because of the nature of family gatherings and the plans ahead, those who are coming town, you end up seeing family members that you might not choose to otherwise. And my guess is, if you were to think about your family, you probably have that one uncle that's just a little squirrely, Maybe a little bit off, maybe a little strange, maybe a little creepy. You want to have a creepy uncle out there? Jalen, don't raise your hand. Where's Jalen? If you can't think of the creepy uncle, maybe you're the creepy uncle. Unless you're an aunt, then you can't be an uncle, but don't be the creepy aunt. That's even worse. This morning, we're going to dive into a crazy family dynamic, which, by the way, I hope, I trust that as we've been going through these characters of the book of Genesis, you might feel better about your own dysfunctional family as you note that the families in the Bible are dysfunctional and really quite whack. And so I would recommend at your family gatherings, you should just read the stories from Genesis together, like just taking turns, and then stop and just laugh and go, well, at least we're not as crazy as they are. Because Genesis provides some great storylines for the Jerry Springer show. Like if I'm the producer of the Jerry Springer show, I'm going right to the families in Genesis. And this morning is no different. This morning I want to introduce you to creepy Uncle Laban. Now you might have heard his name before. In fact, if I could just, let me walk through just a real quick review of where we've been. The very first week we kicked off our series talking about Ham, not like the delicious Ham, like Ham the son of Noah who the Bible tells us uncovered his father's nakedness. So we spent a whole morning talking about that. If you missed it, you can look at it uh, online. Our website has all the podcasts up there. The second week, we talked about Ishmael, who is Abraham's firstborn son through his wife's servant girl, Hagar. And I don't know about you, but every time I mention Hagar, does Sammy Hagar come to mind for everybody else, or is it just me? Every time I mention Hagar, it's like I can't drive 55. Anyhow, the third week, last week, We talked about the story of Esau and his deceiving scoundrel brother, Jacob. Now, Laban fits between these stories of Ishmael and Esau. Ishmael's little brother was, anyone remember who Ishmael's little brother is? Anyone? Who was it? Yelled out, go ahead. Isaac is Ishmael's little brother. And what happens is, Abraham and Sarah want to find a wife for their pride and joy of their baby Isaac. We used to have a baby Isaac in the house. And they wanted to find a wife from within the family. So what Abraham does is, he sends his servant to, off to his brother Nahor's family to find a wife for his son Isaac. And the servant goes off, and who he finds is a woman named Rebekah. And Rebekah has a brother, and the brother's name is Laban. The servant introduces himself, says he's there to find a wife for his servant Abraham to marry his son Isaac, and then he asks, will you send Rebekah back with me to go marry Abraham's son Isaac? And this is where Laban makes his appearance, and he does all of the talking, and in the end, he's the one that strikes a bargain to marry off his sister Rebekah to Abraham's son Isaac. And the Bible will give us a quick glimpse of the character of Laban, some of the motivations of Laban. It will say in Genesis 24, verse 29, now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, And he hurried out to the man at the spring. And as soon as he had seen, listen, the nose ring 
and the bracelets on his sister's arms and had heard Rebekah tell what the man said to her, he went out to the man and found him standing by the camels near the spring. Now, you see what's happening here? See, Rebekah encounters the servant from Abraham. The servant recognizes you're Rebekah. You, right? you are the daughter of uh, my servant's uh, brother, Nahor. And so I want you to come back and marry Isaac. And so he puts a nose ring on, in her nose because that was the custom. I don't know why we ever got away from that. I like that. Will you marry me? Ching! Like, right? Like, boom, nose ring. And then he puts a bunch of bracelets on her. And when her brother comes out and sees the bling bling, he's like, oh, this could be some serious cha-ching. And so they strike a deal. He goes out and feigns hospitality. Oh, why don't you come back with us? Verse 31. Come, you who are blessed by the Lord. What that means is you who are rich. Why are you standing out here? I prepared the house and a place for the camel. So they get together. They make the bargain. And the deal's done. Rebecca's going back home with the servant to marry Isaac. It says in verse 53 of this same chapter, then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and gave them to Rebekah, and he also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. They both got cars. Like, that's what they for this deal. Now, already we can see that Laban likes the money. He feigns that hospitality, but in the end, it's really for his own gain, and he sends his sister off, Rebecca, in marriage. Now, fast forward. So we're fast forwarding now. Rebecca and Isaac are now married, and they have two twin sons. We've talked about them, Esau and Jacob. Esau will go and marry two Hittite women, the Canaanite women, and his parents hate them. Like, they do not like their daughters-in-law. So after Jacob deceives Esau and Isaac out of the blessing and the birthright that belongs to Esau, Rebecca, the mom, not only to save her son's neck from her brother, from his brother, but also so that he could go find a wife from within their own family, not these stupid Canaanite women that his brother keeps marrying. He sends Jacob off to uncle, creepy uncle Laban to find a wife and also to run away from Esau. Here's where the story picks up in Genesis 28, verse 1. So Isaac, the dad, called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of your creepy uncle Laban. That was my addition. It doesn't really say that. Your mother's brother, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob. And he's, okay, that's our background story. So what happens is Jacob takes off. You'll see a map here of how far he's got to go. It's about a 550-mile walk he's going to take from his homeland to the Aramean, his creepy uncle Laban in Haran is the name of the town that he'll walk to. And here's where the story picks up then, Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey, and he came to the land of the eastern peoples. And there he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. And when all the flocks were gathered together, the shepherds, meaning plural, would then roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. See, the stone on the well was so large that one shepherd couldn't do it by himself. So what they did is they gathered many flocks together, and when they finally all arrived, there were enough shepherds then to move this large rock that was on the well. So, verse 4, Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yeah, we know him. Well, is he well? Yeah, he is. In fact, Here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. 
Look, he said, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. To which they say, we can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while they were still talking, Rachel, Laban's daughter, came with his father's sheep, her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd or a shepherdess. Now, just as a side note, the fact that Rachel here is a shepherdess and is tending her dad's flock is probably a good indication that at this point in the story, Laban doesn't have any sons. He has no sons because it's unusual for the daughters to be the shepherdesses, but not that unusual if there are no sons in the picture. Now, Laban will later have sons because they'll come up in our story, but at least for now, I'm going to guess that Laban has no sons, and so Rachel comes out with her sheep. And in it, well, this happens next, verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Now, did you see what just happened here? This stone, which is so large that it normally takes several shepherds to remove, Jacob, so wanting to impress Rachel, he actually goes off and he removes the stone by himself. Jacob turns into He-Man to impress the ladies. See, men haven't changed much in 3,500 years. You want that stone over there removed? I'll take care of that myself. That's, what, that's what's happening here. And then verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. <laughs> which is funny to me, right? So Jacob wigs out here. He goes up and he kisses Rachel, which I think this really, I think this might be the only time in Scripture where a man kisses a woman that is not his wife or his mother. Like, this is the only time, I think, where he's not married to Rachel yet. This is not his mother. It's the only time in Scripture where a man will kiss another woman who's not his wife or his mother. And that's because there are cultural rules of touch and intimacy, and they still exist today in the Middle East, especially among Muslims. In fact, um, uh, years ago as a church, we helped a refugee couple from Bosnia move here to South Bend, and so we put them up in an apartment. We helped put in furniture. And, and uh, Dave, uh, Javad and Nihada were their names. They were from Bosnia, had a huge tragic story in their past. We kind of helped them get started, gave them a bunch of stuff. The church donated, put them up in an apartment. And it's kind of one of those moments where, you know, it's, they were so thankful and it was very gracious, and, sh- and they had some of their family even there with us. And so in the end, we're about to leave, and they're so thankful, and they're thanking So I give Javad a big hug, and then I go to his wife, Nihada, and I give her a hug. And when I hug her, all of a sudden I hear her family do this. <gasps> like that horrified gasp. And so it's one of those moments where the second you start to hug her, you go, oh, note to self, we probably shouldn't hug married Muslim women. Okay, they, okay, duly noted, sorry about that. And so they probably thought he's just an idiot and they were okay, we let me go. But, um, but, but he kisses Rachel. And then what's funny, then he turns into a big crybaby and, and just starts weeping. Which maybe women like that. We do know in comparison to his brother Esau, he was more of a sensitive mama boy type, but he could move a stone, let me tell you that. So here's what happens next, verse 12. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her dad, Uncle, Uncle Laban, creepy Uncle Laban. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried out to meet him, he embraced him, he kissed him and, and brought him to his home, and there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, why should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, in the moment, it looks like Laban's being kind of generous, right? Well, I'm not going to take advantage of you because you're a relative. Like, you should get paid for this. It looks like he's being generous. But really, this is actually a work-for-hire scheme because Jacob has 
He has a problem. When he left his parents to save his life on the run from his brother, he really left with nothing. And now he's fallen in love with Rachel, Laban's daughter, but he has no bride price. And typically, a marriage would have included a payment, so to speak. It's sort of a trust fund to ensure and guarantee a marriage. And Jacob has no payment, and he has no trust fund to offer. And so he responds back to Uncle Laban, verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was hot. That's what it's saying. She was hot and beautiful. That's what she... Now, if you're reading out of the NIV, which we are on the screen, or if you have an RSV, the Hebrew word translated as weak eyes is like, like what, she blind? Like she's got big old thick glass? Like what does that mean? Like I think that's a bad translation. I don't think that's very accurate. The NRSV will say lovely instead of weak eyes, which I think is a little more optimistic in translation. I think the accurate translation is the Hebrew word is she was delicate or she was soft. So that's not, it's not a cut down on Leah per se. The Bible is trying to tell us that Leah was attractive enough in her own way, but Rachel was babelicious. That, that's what it's saying to us. Or as the kids will say, Rachel is bay. Come on, I just use bay in my sermon. Like this, good night, everybody. This wraps up my preaching career. Verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, better that I give her to you than some other man, so stay here, with us. stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed, look at this, so romantic. They seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that sweet? I'll work seven years for you, my creepy uncle, to marry my smoking hot cousin, Rachel. This is just like a scene right out of the notebook, I'm telling you, like this right out of it. So full of romance and he was so in love, even though it was seven years, it just seemed like a few days. And then you get to verse 21. I love this. Watch this. Verse 21. So Jacob goes to Laban. He says, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. <laughs> Dude, listen to me. Just by way of advice, do not go to your fiance's dad and say, give me my wife. I like to have sex now. Like, that just doesn't go over very well. And should anyone do that to me about my daughter Alex, you will never find his body again. Thank you, Tate. So this is what happens. Listen to this. It gets better. Verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter, Leah, and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant, kind of a two-for-one deal. When morning came, Jacob wakes up, and it's Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Isn't that ironic? What's Jacob's name mean? The deceiver. Why have you deceived me? See, Laban pulled a switcheroo. Instead of giving Jacob Rachel, he snuck Leah in. Oh, and as a bonus, uh, the Zilpah, the servant girl. Jacob sleeps with her, falls asleep, man, wakes up the next morning and realizes it's Leah. Now, my question is this. How drunk do you have to be to realize that after seven years, you don't recognize that the woman you love has been replaced by her sister? The Bible is crazy. And I think this is really what has happened. And Jacob asks, 
Why have you deceived me? You see the irony here, right? The deceiver, Jacob, is deceived. The playa just got played. Come on, people, I'm on a roll. Help me here, help me. It's, it's hard to feel too sorry for Jacob because he's played a switcheroo on his dad. Remember that? He tricked him into thinking it was Esau when it was really Jacob, and karma sucks. And I don't even really believe in karma. But what's interesting is the text never places us in Rachel's shoes. Could you imagine how she must feel? Could you imagine how she must have felt being the pawn in her dad's manipulative, twisted schemes? And watch the irony. Jacob deceives Isaac by reversing the older for the younger, and Laban deceives Jacob by reversing the younger for the older. Verse 26, Laban replied, Well, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Which you're like, Oh, really? Not your custom. All things you could have told me seven years ago. And this is so sneaky. Like, Laban knew Jacob wanted Rachel. He got him to work seven years for her. He could have said seven years ago, actually, you know what? Our custom is to marry off the first before we go on to the younger siblings. He's trying to get more work out of Jacob. So this is how he replies in verse 27. Finish this daughter's bridal week. And that's usually the way weddings work. Like it wasn't just like a one-time event. You showed up for 30 minutes and they go for a reception. It lasted a whole week was the party. That was the festival. Finish this daughter's bridal week and we will give you the younger one too. So you'll get my younger daughter too, Rachel, in return then for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant, and Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. See, favorites are all over Genesis. Always favorites. It never works out either. And he worked for Laban another seven years. That's 14 years, right? Now, what will happen at the end of chapter 29 and end of chapter 30 will be a whole list of Jacob's kids that he has with these four women. And we don't have time to read the whole thing, but it really is this dramatic scene of kid after kid and with this woman and their struggles of barrenness, etc. And so Jacob starts having kids with Leah. And the text even tells us it's because the Lord saw Leah and felt sorry for her because he recognized that Jacob didn't love her like he did Rachel. Like it just says that out there. And so Leah spits out Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah. And then she can't get pregnant anymore. Meanwhile, Rachel's trying to get pregnant, and she can't. And so finally, in frustration, like that same scheme that Sarah pulled with Abraham, hey, why don't you sleep with my servant girl and have children through her for me? She gives to her husband Jacob, her handmaiden, Bilhah, and Jacob starts sleeping with the handmaiden, which, you know, I'm picturing Jacob. He's just so noble, like, if I got to, I got to. I mean, he's not sleeping with another woman. And she spits out Dan and Naphtali. Well, Leah, when she discovers she's not having more kids, she does the same thing. She gives her handmaiden, Zilpah, which I don't know where you get these names, but Zilpah to Jacob. Jacob sleeps with her. They have Gad and Asher. Then a conversation will break out between Leah and Rachel over mandrakes, which were considered an aphrodisiac during this time, and who's going to get to spend the night with Jacob that night. And in the end, Leah wins. And she gets pregnant, and then she spits out three more kids, Issachar, Zebulun, and a girl, Dinah. Then finally, the Bible tells us God remembers Rachel. Remember Rachel? That's what he loves. She hadn't been pregnant the whole time. And God remembers her, and all of a sudden, she conceives and bears a son, Joseph. In seven years' time, this dude has been sleeping with four different women and spits out 12 kids. You think your family's crazy. This family is crazy. 
And after Rachel, his favorite, finally has a son, Jacob now feels like his family is complete and it's ready to end his time with Laban because it's been 14 years and go back to his home country. And so here's what happens next. Verse 25 of chapter 30. After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, his creepy uncle, send me on my way so I could go back to my own homeland. Give me my wives and children for, for whom I have served you and I will be on my way. You know how much work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay, because I have learned by divination, and what that means we're not really sure, that the Lord has blessed me because of you, which is true. Like when Jacob showed up to Laban, he was not that wealthy of a man, but now at this point, 14 years later, he is a very wealthy man, and even Laban knows it's because of Jacob. Everything that Jacob touched succeeded. Like my flocks and my herds are huge because of this man, and now he wants to go away, and all he thinks about is I'm about to lose some serious cash if Jacob takes off. So he says to him in verse 28, name your wages and I will pay them. What's interesting is Jacob says to him this, you know how I have worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now, when may I do something for my own household? What shall I give you, he asked. And Jacob says, don't give me anything. Here's the deal. If you'll do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks. He's saying, I will stay and I will keep tending your flocks and watch over them. Let me go through all of your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark-colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. Now, you need to know, that was a very rare thing. Like, there just can't be very many of them in the flock because typically that was not what took place in terms of the breeding and the, and the animals that came forth. And that will be my wages, he says. And my honesty will testify for me in the future. Whenever you check on the wages you have paid me, any goat in my possession that's not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark-colored will be considered stolen. Agreed, said Laban. Let it be as you've said. And that's because Laban thinks he's getting a steal here. Even normal shepherds, as they tend flocks, are typically were entitled legally to about 20% of the herd or the flock, and there's no way that's going to add up to 20%. So he thinks, I'm getting a huge deal out of this, and so he agrees. Now, Laban is still manipulating and using Jacob for his own financial gain. He's still trying to advance himself at Jacob's expense. And he doesn't really trust Jacob because look what he does next. Verse 35, that same day he removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats, all that had white on them, and all the dark-colored lambs, and he placed them in the care of his sons. So he now, it looks like he now has sons. Then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob. While Jacob continued to tend the rest of Laban's flocks, Jacob, however, took, this is what he does here, Jacob takes cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. Then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. When the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of these branches. And then they bore young that were streaked or speckled or spotted. And then Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Now, whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches, but the animals that were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. And this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and females and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now, let me explain this real quick. This is fascinating. It looks like Jacob turns to two things, superstition and rudimentary genetics. He provides a visual aid to the animals who are mating and assumes by it it is creating speckled and spotted animals. And even the text doesn't seem to contradict this. It just simply is. 
But he also knows enough about genetics to realize that the stronger animals, when they mate, produce stronger offspring. So it's genetic selection. The weak ones will send off to Laban. We won't put the branches down. The strong ones he keeps. And by this, Jacob gets a lot of animals. Now, chapter 31, verse 1. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it used to be. So even Uncle Laban isn't treating him the same way anymore. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. And they do. So Rachel and Leah come out to the fields where Jacob is, where all the animals are. And he makes a speech. And basically he makes three points in the speech. They're this. One, your dad doesn't like me anymore. Two, he's been unfair to me. And three, God has protected me even at the expense of Laban and even by a dream. So this is what happens. Verse 17. Then Jacob put his children and his wives on camels, and he drove all of his livestock ahead of him along with all the goods he had accumulated and put on around to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. When Laban had gone to shear his sheep, Rachel, the daughter, stole her father's household gods. Moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him he was running away. So he fled with all of he had across the Euphrates River and headed for the hill country of Gilead. So you see what's happening here, right? Jacob's taken off by night. Like, don't tell Laban, let's just get out of here. So he gathers his wives, gathers his animals, gathers his children, and they're on the run. Well, what happens next? Here, we'll, we'll finish the scene here, this last scene here of the story. Verse 22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days. That's how long it took to finally catch up with him in the hill country of Gilead. And then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. See, God steps in here and gives him a warning. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him, and Laban and his relatives camped there too. Then Laban went out and said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me, and you've carried off my daughters like they were captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? Which, by the way, that was usually the custom. Like You'd have a big old party and a big festival that goes along with it. You, you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you've gone off without because you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? This is where Jacob finally answers and says, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone here with your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now, see, here's the deal. Jacob didn't know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So, Laban's on a hunt. He goes into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, and he didn't find anything. After he came out of Leah's tent, he goes into Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel, what you don't know, here's, as a reader, you get to find this out. Rachel had taken the household gods, and she put them inside her camel's saddle, and she was sitting on them. And so Laban searched through everything in the tent, but he found nothing again. And Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. (laughs) This family. See, she's tricking her own dad. Like, she's trying to hide the household gods. I can't get up and, well, I'm on my period. Which is going, oh, yeah, forget it. Okay. So he searched but could not find the household gods. And Jacob now is angry with Laban. And he takes him to task. What is my crime? He asked. How have I wronged you that you hunt me down? 
Now that you've searched through all my goods, what have you found that belongs to your house? So go ahead, put it here in front of, uh, of your relatives and mine and let them judge between you and us, between the two of us. I have been with you for 20 years now. 20 years, right? 14 to marry the, the girls and another six more tending over the flock. Your sheep and goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. I did not bring you animals torn from the, from, by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you even demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen by day or night. This was my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, the cold at night, and sleep fled my eyes. It was like this for the 20 years I was in your household. I worked for you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, which is an interesting title for God, like it's all used here twice, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, you surely would have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night he rebuked you. Laban answered Jacob, the woman are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine, which isn't quite true, but he's heated here. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they have born? Now, come now, let's make a covenant, just you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and he set it up as a pillar. And he said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in the heap, and they ate there by the heap. And Laban called it Jagar Shahudutha, and Jacob called it Galid. See, uh, Laban is speaking Aramaic, and that's why he names it that. And Jacob is speaking Hebrew. That's why we're going to call it Galid. But they both mean, in their separate languages, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That is why it's called Galid. It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. So Laban says to Jacob, if you mistreat my daughters or if you take any other wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between us. Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap, and here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness, and this pillar is a witness, and I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and you won't go past this heap of the pillar and harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. And this will conclude Jacob's time with creepy, crazy, manipulative Uncle Laban. He has spent 20 years with Laban. 20 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Not as long as we've had the van in our parking lot, but it's still a long time. So what do we do with Laban? Let's, let's close with this. What do we do with Laban? This story in our Bible is there for a reason. And I think it's there to remind us that God is in control of our future no matter who in your life is trying to screw it up. See, God has a calling for your life. And He has a purpose for your life. He has a reason why you are still breathing and why you are still alive. And at times, we sense that calling and realize our purpose and we begin to make decisions based on it. You might go into college and get a degree or an education in that field or you begin to move in that direction in terms of your career or maybe you begin to volunteer in this particular organization or you make plans for this business or this particular opportunity and then you think about it all the time. You dream about it. You plan for it. You network with other people to move forward. You get your heart pumping. You get excited about it and then along comes someone who looks like they're trying to take away the whole thing. Maybe it's a new relationship that ended up being a betrayal you didn't see coming. Or maybe it's an old friend. 
Or maybe it's a coworker who's trying to take credit for something that you did. And maybe it's just a boss who's just mean and vindictive. And it looks like it's working. Because of what they said, you got passed over for the promotion. Or maybe it's somebody who's spreading gossip about you, about things that are none of their business. Or even worse, maybe they're spreading slander, things about you that aren't even true. And it feels like at any moment you're stuck in a land that isn't your home and you've been there for two decades. And what the story of Laban shows us is God is bigger than Laban. Even in the midst of his duplicity, God is still in control. Laban doesn't get the last word. God will get the last word. And right now, there's someone maybe in your life, and they still dominate your life. They might not even be in it anymore, but your thoughts, they still dominate how you think of yourself, how you think about your situation and your reality. And you might be stuck in anger or bitterness or frustration. Maybe it's your ex-spouse or maybe it's a stepfather. But you keep playing over and over again in your head what life was supposed to look like until they showed up. And when you do that, you're letting them have control in your life because you're still leasing out space in your mind to them. And they're not even paying rent. And you need to speak to that space and just say, so-and-so, go ahead and name them out loud. You don't get the last word in my life in regards to what happens in my life. God gets the final word. And his word is good. And he has a plan and he has a purpose for me. And I will step into it. And I don't care who is trying to manipulate or deceive me to thwart it. They're not bigger than God. And the story illustrates that. The other thing the story isn't here for, the other thing I think is important is the playa, Jacob, needs to be played. Now, let me try to explain this for a moment. But Jacob has some serious character defects. And what's amazing to me about the Bible is that they don't ever try to shield us from Jacob's character defects. They have been a part of our storyline. We have watched him over and over again deceive other people, manipulate other people, trick other people, and swindle. He can be manipulative, duplicitous, and conniving. And if you were a character in the Bible, it would list your character defects as well. And the reason why is, is because we all have them. We all have aspects of our personality that need to be refined, that need to be dealt with, that need to be reined in by God's Spirit. In fact, I would suggest that probably the area of your greatest strength on the flip side of that coin will be your greatest weakness. So you might be a person, you are just a driven individual, you've got great vision in life, and that's your strength. Like, we wouldn't take that away from you. That's fantastic. You've got vision, you've got drive, but on the flip side of that coin will probably be your greatest weakness, and that is your propensity to run over people when they get in your way. Or maybe for you, you've got a great strength to be very patient and very understanding, which is fantastic. We wouldn't take that strength away from you. You just need to be aware that on the flip side of that coin could possibly rest some of your greatest weaknesses, like maybe your inability to make a difficult decision or your propensity to always be taken advantage of. Or maybe you're somebody that you have a very sensitive heart that loves and wants to serve other people. You do it over and over and over again, and who in the world would want to take that away from you? You just need to understand on the flip side of that coin probably will reside your greatest weakness in that you have a tendency to be codependent or an unhealthy desire to rescue people that you perceive need saving, or maybe even just a need for recognition. And listen, we all have them. And sometimes God deals with the weaknesses of our personality and character by sending us through refinement in the school of life. Jacob's 20 years with Laban will be the most character-building of his life. I don't know if you remember this. He will enter into Laban's house as Jacob, which means what? Deceiver. But he will come out of Laban's house as Israel, 
which means wrestled with God and man. Sometimes God lets our playa get played, and it changes us for the good. Now, it sucks at the time. I'd be lying if to say otherwise. Betrayal is always painful. And betrayal can lead you to bitterness, or betrayal can lead you to real wisdom, to some street smarts. And you will be betrayed in life. And most likely it's already happened. If not, it will. And in that moment, it will reveal your character, your motivations, your operating centers. And if you let it, it can lead you to depend on God. Because you learn that just like you, everyone has their own weaknesses. That my guess is some of your greatest growth spiritually and some of your greatest transformation in regards to character and personality came in your most difficult moments. The moments that could have broken you when the pressure was too much that either could crush you or, like placed around coal, turns out to be a precious diamond. Like a diamond in the sky, like a diamond. And what you see in this story, it's the caffeine, I think. And what you, what you see in this story is God's at work to keep his promise. God sees that, oh no, Jacob has been himself betrayed now and deceived. He's noted it. He's seen it all along. It's not escaped his attention. And he knows what Laban has done. And God does step in and say to Laban, Laban, you better not touch Jacob. And all throughout the story of Genesis, it looks like this promise that God made generations ago to Abraham is constantly at jeopardy of just collapsing. And with every barrenness and every betrayal and every sin and every hiccup, God is still at work, always to keep his promise. And he will for us as well. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we're grateful that you are a God who is faithful to all of your promises. And so I pray right now, just for those who just feel like they're hanging on by a thread, who who it feels like everything around them is collapsing, that it's so bleak in regards to the future that they can't see the good purposes that you have in mind, I pray that you'd remove that veil of darkness and let them see a vision and a picture of the future. And I pray in it, Lord, that no matter who might be in their life to speak otherwise or to manipulate or to trick or to deceive, that our faith and our confidence is in you as the one who gets the last word. We're thankful for that, and we trust in that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.